Welcome to Team Up, a podcast where we talk about team-based primary care in British Columbia. Welcome to Team Up. I'm Sarah Fletcher with the UBC Innovation Support Unit, and today we're going to be sharing the webinar that was recorded on March 18th, Addressing Racism in Team-Based Care, Learnings from the In-Plain Sight Report. We are very lucky to have Harmony Johnson, Executive Director from the Review Team, join us for uh, an hour-long webinar that really focused on understanding the findings and recommendations from the Implant Site Report, exploring the relationship of these recommendations to clinical practice and the transition to team-based care, and then really identifying opportunities for strengthening team-based care at local sites and thinking about how individuals and teams uh, might want to respond to and enact the recommendations that came out of the Implant Site Report. Hello, everyone. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us today. So welcome to our seventh webinar in the Team Up Learning Series, Addressing Racism in Team-Based Care, Learnings from the Implant Site Report. My name is Kelly Giesbrecht. I'm a leader for primary and community care with the Health System Improvement Team at the Council. I will be your host and moderator today. I'm joining from my home office located in Prince George, where I live, work, and play on the unceded traditional territory of the Kleewitene. I welcome you to take a moment to recognize the traditional territories where you are situated and share this in the chat box if you wish, if you haven't already. I want to take a moment to mention that Katie, my colleague at the Council, is our technical support today. And I also want to thank Andrew Sue from the UBC Innovation Support Unit for monitoring the, monitoring the chat box for us today. So as of this morning, we had over 400 people registered for this webinar, which is amazing. We have folks joining us from all across the province, from different health authorities and a wide range of other organizations involved in healthcare in BC. We know it's a diverse group. In terms of an agenda for today, Harmony's presentation will take us until about 1235 or so. And then we have about 10 to 15 minutes for a question and answer period. Um, so before we get started, if you are able, I invite you to pause. Ah, I think we have over 200 people already today. Before we get started, if you're able, I invite you to pause, take a few breaths, and even close your eyes if that's comfortable for you, and give yourself permission to let go of your to-do list, any emails, or any upcoming meetings to be fully present for this hour you've set aside in your day today to participate in this conversation. So it looks like we've got a, a mix of people joining us today from primary care teams, supporting team-based primary care, and folks who um, are perhaps not directly involved in team-based care. So it's great. We knew that there would be a lot of interest in our talk today, so we're very grateful that you can join us. Without further delay, I want to thank Harmony Johnson for being with us today to discuss how we can address racism in team-based care through learnings from the In Plain Sight report. I'm going to hand it uh, over to you, Harmony. Thanks, Kelly. <clears throat> and thanks for that invitation to all of us to be present and take a moment to ground ourselves. I found as soon as you said that, I was like clenching my jaw, running from thing to thing. I too will be present in this dialogue today. So my name is Harmony. My ancestral name is Setlakis, and I'm from the Flamin Nation. I see there's someone else uh, in the chat who's in my home territories, which is about 200 kilometers up the coast from where I'm joining today, which is on Slavatif territory uh, in North Vancouver. 
So I'm going to walk us through a set of slides about a project that we're just ramping down in the next couple of weeks here. In approximately June, the Minister of Health invited Dr. Mary Ellen Chapelle-Lafond to undertake a review of a particular incident or allegation, but examine that within a broader context of systemic racism and discrimination specific to Indigenous peoples in healthcare. So Mary Ellen invited me to direct the review. And despite the subject matter, I would say it was a positive experience in that we did meet with cooperation, support, I think genuine openness from all corners of, of the health system. So every, certainly we had lots of support from Indigenous peoples and organizations and significant interest and full cooperation from health authorities, from physician leadership, from nursing leadership, from all of the regulatory colleges. And that made what is a very tough subject matter easier for us. Just a comment on in plain sight. That process that started in June, like I said, we're ramping down. We released two reports on November 30th. There's a summary report. Summary for people like Mary Ellen and myself is probably 60 some odd pages. And then a long report, which was a much more comprehensive examination. And I really do urge, I recognize everyone's busy. People ask me, what is the first thing that I can do? What can I do? And I do say, have you read the report? It's a lot to digest. I myself keep circling back to it with different questions, different lenses based on the audiences that I'm talking to. So those two reports were released on November 30th. On February 4th, we released two supplemental pieces. One was a very comprehensive data report that was the full, because we did quite a lot of data collection, which I'll speak about. All of those records are sealed following an investigation such as this. So we wanted to give as much visibility to that data in an ethical way as we could. So we released that data report on February 4th. And we also released a short piece that reflects upon the relationship between the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and this review. All of that is available on the site where the reports are stored. And because this review really took the five, six months. Like this information is in plain sight to all of us. Everyone we spoke to acknowledged the problem. They know it exists. And so this is something that the report is commenting on, but it's been there and we've all known about it. So I'm going to talk about some difficult things in a very frank way. It is important for us to speak frankly, about these issues so that we can recognize when that behavior, when some of those mindsets are happening around us. So just take care of yourself and particularly for Indigenous peoples, if you require extra supports, there's some phone lines and support available to you as described on this slide. So before I jump in, I'm just going to take a few minutes on key terms and concepts. So something that was surprising to me was that we, I've worked in the system a while and I've been involved in this space of cultural safety for a number of years. And what I really found through all of this comprehensive review was that there's very limited, really no standard understanding of what these terms, we have no standard definitions. We are using terms in a very sloganistic way they've become certain things have become mottos that when you probe a bit there's not as much depth of understanding about what those concepts actually mean and particularly what they mean 
within a person's context of practice, whatever that practice may be. So part of our interest in the review was to describe some of these terms, not just on their own, but in relationship to each other so that we can, again, understand the problem. There are also other tools and part of our recommendations were encouraging greater uptake of standardized terms to help support more systemic action and systemic improvement on this issue. So we on the left-hand part of the slide are a set of issues or a set of problems that we were examining. So racism, right? Like the hierarchy of people, their value based on their color of their skin or their cultural identity. And for Indigenous peoples, this racism is specific and it's tied to our history as a settler colonial country. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the presentation. Systemic racism is the recognition that Indigenous specific racism is embedded in different ways throughout our institutions, our society, so that racism may happen in between two individual people, but it also shapes our processes, our institutions, our policies, our decision making. Profiling is a set of preset beliefs about someone based on the color of their skin or their cultural identity. And that preset belief or profiling leads to prejudice and discrimination, which is differential treatment in a negative way, typically based on a person's skin color, cultural identity. And privilege is the ability to not experience that profiling. So you can see on the slide, there's a quote that we published in the review from a non-Indigenous man, his wife is First Nations, and he takes the kids to get medical treatment because the kids get better care because he's white and his wife is visibly First Nations. Someone like me, I'm Indigenous, but I'm white passing. I can choose, it's privilege that I hold to be able to choose whether to declare whether I'm Indigenous or not based on how I feel like that might impact the quality of care I might receive. In the middle of the slide, there's a set of mindsets, practices, tools. These are the solutions to help ameliorate those problems that we see on the left-hand part of the slide. So anti-racism is the active, proactive dismantling of racism in all forms, whether those are interpersonal or systemic. It's, and for Indigenous peoples, anti-racism also involves anti-colonialism. So there's really no being neutral on the issue of racism. Right, people might say, I'm not racist or I don't see color. Those things are not true and they're not valid responses. We are either kind of racist or, or we're anti-racist. And that puts an obligation and a responsibility on us to act, to dismantle these structures of oppression for people for whom those structures exist and inhibit their potential. And cultural humility is a practice of self-interrogation and lifelong learning to recognize one's own biases, recognize how one has been shaped in one's beliefs by many cues throughout society. That's our family, that's the education system, that's the media. And cultural humility is about reflecting that and knowing it, pursuing learning about others, pursuing learning about oneself. And for me personally, like I think these two concepts go hand in that Anti-racism is very much an active kind of practice of dismantling racism where it exists. 
Cultural humility is that inward facing recognition of privilege. And I think both are necessary for the change that we're seeking. And then what are the desired outcomes that we're after? So substantive equality, it recognizes we all come from different starting points with, as I noted, different forms of oppression, maybe limiting our potential in different ways, but we all want to achieve substantially equitable outcomes. There's also two interrelated concepts for me around cultural safety and Indigenous human rights. So you'll see on the right-hand side of the slide, Article 24 of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. There are a number of articles of the UN Declaration that apply as it relates to the Indigenous right to health. This is the one that's most often pulled through. So it's about, it describes many of the features of cultural safety. So the right to traditional medicine, the right to substantive equality, the right to experience care without discrimination. And then there's a set of standards that also are about the right to governance and self-determination. And those are really how we define Indigenous right to health. And the achievement of those things creates an environment of cultural safety, which is an outcome. That's an identity affirming outcome, a positive care environment, positive care experience. And in BC, because we do have a declaration on the rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, we have a legal obligation to be upholding Indigenous rights and actively dismantling systems that oppress those human rights. This is the methodology we undertook for the review. So obviously there were limitations as a result of the pandemic. We couldn't travel to different geographic regions to meet people in person and hear their stories. So we did the best we could within that environment. So left-hand slide side of the slide shows the direct interface we had with individuals throughout the course of the review. Approximately 9,000 individuals, two surveys we ran, one an Indigenous people survey that got about 2,800 respondents, both Indigenous and Indigenous respondents, Health worker survey, about 5,500 respondents. I know there's lots of dots and the text is really small. You can pull the full infographic out of the report. We opened a phone line and email. We had about 600 respondents to that by the time we cut off for the purposes of analysis of the report. Since that time, there's been several hundred more that we continue to monitor and work through. And then key informant interviews, about 150. Then on the right-hand side of the slide, we did quite comprehensive data analysis as well. Minister Dix did empower a small number of us with authority under the Ministry of Health Act to examine row-level data. So we did a where we worked through Métis Nation, British Columbia, and First Nations Health Council, First Nations Health Authority processes of data governance to do a series of data matches to examine health system utilization and outcomes for approximately 185,000 Indigenous peoples in BC. We also pulled data from a number of surveys in which a self-identifier is embedded or which Indigenous peoples have participated in visibly, COVID Speak Survey, Regional Health Survey, and PREMS. We also pulled complaints from all of the health authorities, the First Nations Health Authority, and four regulatory bodies, specifically looking at Indigenous complainants and complaints, and then we did a literature review. So through the surveys, what did we hear about racism? 84% of Indigenous respondents reported some form of discrimination in healthcare. Over half of Indigenous healthcare workers reported experiencing racial prejudice at work, and the majority of that was from colleagues or people in positions of authority to, to their position. 
More than a third of non-Indigenous healthcare workers reported personally experiencing racism or discrimination to Indigenous patients or their families. Top reasons why racism persists. One, employees not willing to speak up. So again, this kind of comes to my point about, can we be neutral on this? Being a bystander, complicity in some ways. And how do we create environments where it's safe to speak up? And that's welcome. But that one was the top reason why employees do not speak up when they see this behavior. Lack of accountability by leadership to stop that behavior and insufficient numbers of Indigenous healthcare professionals. So you can see that what we have at the same time is Indigenous healthcare workers saying that they're personally experiencing racism at work, and yet we have insufficient numbers of Indigenous healthcare professionals. So we have work to do in the collegial environment to increase the safety for Indigenous healthcare workers. You can also see that we received 531 racist comments in the survey. Certainly we received a whole number of additional emails um, and correspondence, as you might imagine. Some of these were the more egregious forms of racism that you might expect, but a good majority of these were, it was like that solidarity aspect, or perhaps it can be attributed to being able to recognize racism when it's exhibited by someone else, but a failure to understand how one might share those own beliefs. So for example, there would be comments such as, yes, I saw my colleague call a First Nations person a drunk in the emergency room, but what do you expect? They do drink too much. Those were the types of racist comments that were quite common in, in those 531. Next slide. We also asked about solutions. So what do our healthcare workers, what do Indigenous people say needs to change? This is reported in quite a, a level of detail in the data report we released on February 4th. The purpose of this slide here is to reveal that many of the same priorities for change are being advanced by those like 8,000 people that participated in our surveys. The policy, we need systemic intervention to make cultural safety an outcome we're striving towards and to make reporting racism and speaking up a requirement. And more Indigenous healthcare workers. Training came up over and over again. And the difference was in the first one, right? So people who are working in the system say, we need leadership to do more. And then Indigenous healthcare worker or um, patients are saying, we need ways to raise issues when we do have a, a poor experience. The current feedback processes are not working. Next slide. So this graphic here really represents a lot of the findings and the kind of overall logic of the review at a glance. So we in the top left hand around the 11 o'clock is that we as Indigenous peoples come from a long history of medicine, of science, of healing in our nations and in our governments. Those are often tied to a philosophy of holistic health and well-being, understand, understanding the different dimensions of being a human being and the importance of having those dimensions in balance and of being in relationship with people, with our environment, with our ancestors and with our future generations. And colonialism and the process of settler colonialism in Canada 
was intended to oppress and subjugate those philosophies, those knowledge systems, those practices, those governments. And in order to do that, like to impose very oppressive policies on another peoples, a series of very pernicious and negative beliefs were cultivated about Indigenous peoples. So in order to take people's children away and put them in residential school, the belief is that Indigenous peoples are bad parents. The culture is inferior. In order to create Indian reserves and a process of segregation with a need to get permission or a pass in order to leave the community and return to the community in order to implement that on another peoples, you need to set, there's a set of beliefs about they're contagious, they're gonna spread disease to us. So there's, these were a set of beliefs that were intentionally cultivated within society to which enabled these colonial practices, residential schools, Indian Act, Indian hospitals, segregated healthcare systems, and those beliefs were about the inherent inferiority of Indigenous peoples. And our systems in British Columbia today, our laws, our policies, our institutions are built on that settler colonial foundation. Colonial, colonialism underpins our society. And those show up in healthcare today. So in our examination of all of the different data sources I talked about, there's a set of very common stereotypes and you'll recognize that some of these stereotypes have their lineage into that colonial history through to today. So the most common stereotypes, less worthy, not as worthy as non-Indigenous peoples, drinkers, alcoholics, and drug seeking, bad parents, frequent flyers, non-compliant and less capable, get stuff for free, and Layered on top of those common stereotypes were a whole set of very deeply misogynist views that were pretty specific to Indigenous women. So sexually promiscuous, different pain tolerance, too many kids with too many dads, squaw was another one that was very common. Those are really what we saw come up again, all of our data sources, all settings, everything we looked at. So we think of how that shapes, that, that's the profiling. And how does that shape then experience or discriminatory behavior? So what we saw, again, looking at all these data sources, abusive interactions, there certainly was like name calling, rough kind of treatment of people's bodies, denial of service, quite a lot of ignoring and shunning, or I guess, commute like less effort invested in communicating with Indigenous patients about what's going on with them, going on with their families, less information uh, imparted to them. Inappropriate pain management. So again, if you think someone's drug seeking, that can lead to inappropriate or no pain management. Medical mistakes, symptoms of stroke attributed to drinking, and disdain for cultural healing. Like, oh, that has no place here. That doesn't belong in real science, that kind of stuff. So in your mind, I'll ask you to also imagine that there's a dotted line across the wheel here from discrimination over to poor outcomes. We did analyze in some detail a data set that enabled us to demonstrate very clearly that there is a strong association between the experience of racism and poor health outcomes. So the experience of having had a racist experience in the last 12 months 
was associated with higher rates of stress, distress, traumatic substance use, among other things. Additionally, discrimination shapes access. These environments are unwelcoming, people don't want to go there. There's also these are this there's also systemic factors at play here, obviously, right? That indigenous or First Nations communities were placed in the fringes of their territory in these new reserves. Often those are the same areas that are underserved by healthcare today. There's mistrust. This is something very troubling to us is that that kind of treatment leads to mistrust and avoidance of healthcare. And, and as a result, we saw much lower GP and P attachment across all age groups. And this along with structural factors, and certainly we have like the racism gap does not just exist in healthcare, but it exists in economic development, it exists in income, it exists in other areas that also shape these inequities in health outcomes. So higher suicidation, lower life expectancy, higher infant mortality, increased rates and faster progression of chronic disease to name a few. So you can see that without attributing correctly the root cause of these disparities to our shared history of settler colonialism and how it is active in our society today, those reporting of those poor outcomes simply leads to validation of stereotyping. So if something is reported out of context, like higher infant mortality, that can just feed people's profiling of Indigenous peoples as bad parents. So illuminating the cycle, illuminating this wheel and diagnosing and showing what racism looks like in all of its forms was a very critical contribution that we wanted to make in this review. So on the left-hand side here, these are the findings that we made in the review. The problem, stereotyping, and its impacts. I just talked about that. Like I said, Indigenous women girls are disproportionately impacted. I'll talk a little bit more about that. What we see is that these public health emergencies really magnify the problem. It takes that cycle and it just makes it very stark. So we saw in COVID, for example, there's 80% higher rates of COVID amongst First Nations. We saw in the media and other places how people reacted to that and the kind of racial stereotyping that very quickly emerged in that context. Indigenous healthcare workers and students face significant racism and discrimination work and study environments, even though that is something that is noted by everyone as a very necessary solution. In examining the solutions, Current education and training programs are inadequate. I think what we saw in a number of key areas that are known to create enhanced cultural safety is that there's excellent pockets of work that may be happening here and there, but they're not systemically connected to one another. They're not necessarily required. They're not resourced to scale up and, and they're like a, an add-on. So. Education and training, lots of good stuff happening here, there, everywhere. We just, we need to think about ourselves as a system here and understand how we're trying to proactively generate cultural safety as an outcome. Complaints processes don't work. I talked about that. Indigenous people report that paperwork is not a barrier to them. So non-Indigenous people who are reporting on this to us said, no, like in the survey, it was like, I don't do it because it's too much paperwork. Indigenous people did not say that. They said, I don't pursue complaints because nothing is going to change. So there's not a lot of faith or trust that the issue is going to be examined effectively. And that was certainly borne out in our review of those 400 plus complaints. 
Indigenous health practices and knowledge not integrated. Again, excellent pockets of work happening in different places of the system, not meaningful integration, which is why we really advanced this concept of hardwiring. Because right now what we see is independent pockets, but our biggest policy levers for change have not been utilized. So legislation, for example, is obviously a significant tool that the health system can use that has not been deployed yet towards this purpose. More Indigenous roles in leadership and decision-making. Organizations each have their own work to do to enhance cultural safety. And to do that, they do need greater Indigenous presence at um, leadership and decision-making tables. There's heavy reliance on Indigenous organizations to do their own work, plus kind of tell organizations what their work is about. And that's not sustainable. And then finally, there's no accountability for eliminating Indigenous-specific racism, including data and monitoring of progress. So on that front, next slide, we did examine a lot of data sources in the review. We released our separate data report in February. What we see, there's a lot there, a few kind of meta conclusions. Indigenous peoples are receiving care skewed towards the emergency and high acuity environment and away from primary preventative care. As I said earlier, First Nations of all age groups had comparative, comparatively lower attachment to GPs and MPs, and particularly in our elders, which is when typically people need the most continuity and attachment to care. And this has implications, as I'm sure everybody on this call, I don't need to convince you of the importance of primary care, but we saw even just looking at cancer alone, this was data that was published for the first time in our report, was that pap screening, for example, amongst First Nations women is 68% of that of non-First Nations women, yet cervical cancer rates are 1.6 times higher, comparable on the FIT testing as well. And then as a result, emergency departments, the locus for a lot of care, and Indigenous women are shouldering the greatest burden of any group that we looked at in the review. So greater health disparities, lower access to services, including in that prenatal um, period. The public health emergencies are impacting Indigenous women disproportionately. They feel the least safe accessing emergency services and are leaving against medical advice at rates higher than anyone else that we, anyone else's rates. Next slide. So based on all of this recommendations, like this is a complex problem and it involves people, people's kind of beliefs, which they may not even recognize that they're holding. So to make this kind of social change, we thought about like how to best structure this. We took a very strong human rights lens approach and we decided to break the recommendations into really three categories, systems. So what needs to happen in legislation, in kind of structural, ways in terms of accountability and leadership, what needs to happen. So there's 10 recommendations there. And that was really the biggest bucket of recommendations, recognizing that our major conclusion was like, good intention, good pockets of work, no system is happening here. Second category, behaviors. So this was a lot about the behaviors of individual organizations and what they need to do to take action in this space. We need more work on mental health, for example. Beliefs, this is a lot about education and training. So we proposed new education and training for like standardized for all health workers, which is, I gotta say, a recommendation that I wrote as a policy person early in my career in 2006. And we agreed at that time in the Transformative Change Accord First Nations Health Plan 
that this training would be mandatory and it wasn't. And so like here again, 15 years later, like it's necessary. We also need to build that into the post-secondary environment. And we have proposed a school or like a joint degree program with both medicine and nursing and indigenous health. So then when I was thinking about, and you're all the experts in team-based care, I'm not, but when I was thinking about implications for this group, again, training and education and designed for teams, right? Like we often train by profession and that's very helpful, but we need to train in geographic um, realities and the realities of people's practice. What we see is a lot of gateway awareness raising, like necessary, but we also need training that is point of care. What does this mean for me in my practice? We need greater tools. So this is that people don't know, and it's not their fault. Like they don't know what does this mean for me at the desk or what does this mean for me at the bedside? So we need greater tools and resources. I was very pleased to see that the National Collaborating Center for Indigenous Health was funded to create a national repository for tools. So hoping that that more investment is made there and that asset gets built out for all of us. Speak up culture, we need the ability to talk to our colleagues about this issue and particularly to speak up if we see something happening that we recognize as racism. That in and of itself will help create this collegial environment where Indigenous peoples feel safe working alongside you. Integration of Indigenous medicine and practitioners within team-based care. We know that there's some efforts at having knowledge keepers and traditional medicine practitioners just embedded right into primary care teams. We've seen some of that in other jurisdictions as well, Alaska, for example. Attachment obviously is like a huge problem and really needs to be a focus of all of the primary care transformation work happening in British Columbia. And I'll just keep bringing the focus on women's health, which was a deeply concerning part of the review. Like women's health is everybody's health. It's our family's health. It's our community's health. It's our nation's health. It's our population health. So there's a lot of focus that's necessary to create substantive equality for our women, which will create substantive equality for everyone and integration, better integration with mental health and substance use services. We see a great need there and a growing need, particularly amongst youth. So the data report unpacks that all in detail and would urge us to think about primary care models that are highly integrated in with mental health and substance use services. So I know I've gone a little bit over, but hopefully that quick overview of our thousand page or so reports has been helpful for you. Thank you so much, Harmony. I really appreciate the complexity of the findings and the insights and the recommendations uh, coming from the In Plain Sight report and the review. And thank you for, for sharing that with us today, the highlights, and for connecting that so well to our team-based care context. I'm going to open it up for questions now. We have about 10 minutes for some questions. If we're not able to answer all of them today, we encourage you to bring your questions forward in your evaluation. Harmony, you mentioned the NCCIH, the National Collaborating Centre for Indigenous Health, working on a repository for tools. Do you know any more, anything more about that? And what's the status or is it? In the period of time we were conducting the review, there was this horrific case of George Echequan in Quebec. And it brought very stark focus to the fact that this is not a problem just in British Columbia, but across the country. As a result, the federal government held two major meetings 
on this issue during the period of time that we were working on the review. And as a result of the last session, they made a number of announcements. So one of those announcements was that they were funding the Collaborating Centre to create a national repository. This is all very recent. This is in the last kind of six weeks or so, probably. So do they have that set up yet? I don't know. But I we're lucky in that we have Dr. Margot Greenwood as the academic lead for the Collaborating Centre, and she's also the VP for Indigenous Health at Northern Health. So I'm quite sure that whatever they do is going to be highly applicable to all of our work here in British Columbia. Great. Thank you, Harmony. And I think that's something that I'll certainly keep an eye on in terms of resources that connect to team-based care. So thank you for bringing that up and for that additional context. Looking at our Q&A, we have a few more trickling in. This one's kind of a two-part question. So what are some recommendations for developing a feedback loop to know where or how we can address specific experiences? So that's part one. I would say that the the issue of complaints complaints or incidents was the hardest part of our struggle with the review. We thought that through deeply and talked to a lot of people about it. I do think there's space for both creating systems that address complaints, but also celebrate where we are doing things well and people have had a positive experience. And it's not something our system's really built to do. Anybody's system is really built to do. So I would say this isn't specific necessary to Indigenous people. But what I like, I I think that what we need to do is there's systematic work that needs to be done on complaints and that we'll need to focus on legislative intervention and each organization and regulatory college working in some sort of coordinated fashion to implement a number of improvements. We had also recommended the creation of a representative and advocate role, recognizing that's going to take some time. And us opening that phone line was like a fire hose of pent up need towards us, telling us that, and the fact that those have continued right through to today tells us that there's a need for that kind of role. Maryland and I are finishing up in the next two weeks here. We need to create that functionality that serves, I think, as a way to, can be a centralizing organizing feature with kind of boots on the ground in the regions that does work to help speak on behalf of Indigenous people when they want someone who looks like them speaking on their behalf in these processes. And that celebrates success. I also think we need to keep running the survey and similar instruments like that on a more routine basis. So several ways of addressing that piece at different levels. Okay. So the second part for that was how do we create respectful and transparent examples of the racism as a lever for change? Well, I think what we did in the review was, was very cl- try to balance both. This is not an advocacy report. This is an evidence-based review using both qualitative and quantitative data and people's individual histories, case histories, to try to appeal to everyone, like people who are like very data driven, like myself, people who are very driven by, you know, the story of someone's like experience. That's all there. We had a hard time wrestling the 600 cases down to the ones that we used in the review. So I'm hopeful that people read the review, that those case histories speak for themselves and do catalyze the change that we're looking for. Great. Thank you. And I really, I 
read the in plain sight report and I really do appreciate that balance between the data and the qualitative and the stories because it really just helps hit home with what the complexity and the need is, at least from my experience reading the report. A, a tools related question. So what tools are available to support organizations in doing their own work in addressing Indigenous specific racism? And I think you alluded to a few of these um, during your presentation. There's lots of stuff to read. Like I'm a fan of self-directed learning and people have different ways of learning. So there's like podcasts, there's webinars, there's books, there's articles, there's courses you can take. Like I, I'm just a huge proponent of that. Like I too read a lot in this space and try to educate myself. That's something I promote, create a little sort of discussion circle or create a little book club in your working environment. That also helps us helps everyone decrease the cultural load on Indigenous people. So when the report was released, the thing Mary Ellen said at the review was like, or at the press event was like, how about today you don't just pick up the phone immediately and call the Indigenous person in your life and ask them what you should do. <laughs> there's people like me who like agree to do this kind of work. And there's lots of people who don't. So educate yourself, I think is important and reading and taking courses, that's all good. We also produce the infographic in some ways to try to create a tool. And if you have an adverse event involving an Indigenous person or some sort of incident, like maybe think about that infographic as a way to diagnose whether there was any, what racism may have looked like, whether it was systemic or interpersonal, like in that environment. That's something I think I've certainly been involved in a few of those now since the review and being able to take that infographic and think our way through it also helps to neutralize because this is a difficult subject matter and people don't like to think about how they may be influenced by bias and how their colleagues might be influenced by bias. So hopefully a tool like that, that can serve as a bit of a, as a bit of a tool. And there's lots of anti-racism websites with all sorts of like little scripts and tools and resources that are available and thankfully are really growing. Thank you so much for that. I think for that recommendation to the self-directed learning, but then also establishing a group of people that you can work with to discuss what you're learning and what is coming up for you on this journey, I think is really important to just not necessarily do it all alone. So I think this is a really interesting question. So what do you see as the biggest opportunities in primary care to support Indigenous health and wellness? And I think you alluded to some of that in your um, implications piece. Yeah, I think we have a clear imperative. So hopefully the imperative is clear. I do think the data gives us a lot of opportunity to drill into specific like age cohorts that we might want to focus in on that kind of thing, like just help make it a more manageable set of targets for us initially. I think that the co the fact that like the province has embarked on this process of primary care transformation at the same time as this is coming out and this broader social conversation is happening is something that I hope means that we have these paths diverging or converging in the right same direction. There's communities are, I think, increasingly tied into health authorities in these shared forums for dialogue, increasingly working with primary care networks across the province. Like, I think we're on the right path. It will take some time and I'm hoping that some of the data that we provided helps give an extra impetus to it. This is very local work, some of it, right? Like we made these big recommendations at a system level and some of those things need to happen at a system level. And then lots of stuff needs to happen 
localized with the local communities and the local patient population. And so primary care, I think, like a lot of things, like we've done the systemic work, like the policy framework's there, the data's there. This is now local relationship work that needs to happen in my view. Thank you for that. And I do see that work is happening at the local level on varying degrees and scales, for sure. So we have, I think we have time for one more question. I just want to follow that thread about primary care and the primary care network. So one question that we had, and I think this goes to the, the data side of things as well, how might a primary care network measure how slash where we are making a change in difference? I want to be careful in my answer because I also don't want to like, send people off in all directions to like yeah. suddenly start measuring things in an unsafe way. <laughs> Caution on that. We've set a bit of a baseline here and we've proven that data can happen and be done quickly. This coincides with increased, I think, recognition. If folks haven't read the BC Human Rights Commission report, a grandmother perspective on disaggregated data that recently came out, mm-hmm. like very excellent piece. I think really reflecting on the value of disaggregated data by race or by culture and that that needs to be done in a way that honors First Nations and Métis data governance processes. We are data sovereigntists as Indigenous people and collecting data about us has to happen with us and governed by us given that it's been used against us. So the reason that Mary Ellen and I, I think we're able to, to get this report done was in part because it was an Indigenous-led process. We do need more self-identification, collection of self-identification information. We released a data standard on this issue in 2007, so it is there as a tool. Like I said, it needs to be done in partnership with Indigenous peoples, but we do need to collect more data. We need to build in to surveys and other mechanisms appropriate questions. So I think finding or recommending Finding 11, I think, goes in that into that in some detail and recommendation, I think, nine. I'm trying to test myself. I think that that's where most well, of No, you're are. right. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. And we'll make sure we're going to have a follow-up newsletter probably sometime next week. And we'll make sure to also highlight that disaggregated data report for folks. And we'll have a few other resources that were either mentioned uh, during this webinar or other ones that we know about to support pe- people in their journey. And definitely encouraging people, as you said at the beginning, where do I start? Start by reading the reports. So we highly recommend that. So thank you so much, Harmony, for your time today. We are just have a couple of wrap-up comments. I want to thank all of our participants for joining us today and for your questions. I'm sorry that we couldn't get to all of them today in the time that we had and within the scope of what we were able to do today. So please, if you would like us to try and follow up on those, include them in your evaluation. And we'll do our best as an organization to continue moving this conversation forward. We wanted to leave you with two questions for reflection to for you to take forward maybe as an individual or maybe bring forward as a group if you're going to start getting together with folks to talk this through. Just thinking about what is one of your key learnings from today's presentation? And then advancing cultural safety through anti-racism and humility in healthcare starts with us. What is your personal commitment to action regarding the findings of the In Plain Sight report? So we wanted to leave those two two questions, thought-provoking questions for you as you move on with your day, your week, your year, but also as you embark on um, your journey coming out of this um, discussion today. Again, thank you so much, Harmony, for joining us today. Um, We really appreciate your time um, and your insights and expertise. Our next webinar is on April 22nd. And it's going to be a follow-up to our discussion in February regarding elements of high-functioning teams and focuses on psychological safety. 
and we hope to see you then. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning anything further about the material that was referenced in this presentation, please visit teambasedcarebc.ca.